0: or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Easy assignment for you this morning. How many of you, by show of hands, or by show of device, have one of these? Ah, the groaning begins over here. For those of you who are listening and aren't seeing this, it's of course a cell phone. The first patent for a wireless communication device was issued in 1908. More than a century ago, this possibility that we hold in our hands today had already entered the imagination. And for decades, engineers toiled away. Then 50 years ago, 1973, Dr. Martin Cooper, general manager for Motorola's communication system division, made the first call on a public mobile phone. In 1992, 30 years ago, this coming December, the first commercial text message was sent by a mobile device. It read, Merry Christmas. In 1999, the first BlackBerry device hit the market. It was genius. Phone, calendar, email, day planner, and I still miss my BlackBerry. A year later, the venerable Nokia 3300 series was unveiled. That is the phone that turned us all into mobile device addicts. It was small, cheap, dependable, and then in 2007. The entire world changed. Steve Jobs rolled out the first of these. The first iPhone. The first smartphone. The first touchscreen phone. Android followed out, rolled out the next year with a competing device. And Nokia, who owned the cell phone market at the time, scoffed. The CEO of Nokia at the time said this. Sure, it's a cool little phone, but it won't move an inch of market share. Today in the United States, Apple holds 50% of the smartphone market. Samsung holds 30%. Nokia is clumped in with others who share a single digit. Why is Bobby Rains texting me from the back of the... Okay, it was a group text. Sorry about that, Bobby. (laughs) He's just trying to illustrate the point. The smartphone changed everything. Communications, shopping, banking, entertainment, navigation, travel, socialization, controls over your thermostat, your security system, your refrigerator. Photos, video, music, dating... Video conferencing, long distance connections, weather, news, clocks, alarms, games, health monitoring, keeping track of your kids or your parents. This has been the single most powerful, most impactful creation of human technology in the history of the world. And that's not an exaggeration. 90% of the world. 97% of Americans have and use a smartphone. I've had the experience of standing in the Palestinian desert and a Bedouin whip out the LG Android phone to translate my English. The poorest of families in El Salvador up in the mountains, boom, there's a phone with at least a browser on it. In places in this world where there is no running water, no stable electricity, no health care to speak of, not a flash of civilization, but there will always be in those places a cell phone tower and thousands of hand-held devices. The phone that you hold in your hand has revolutionized the human species and it simultaneously has made us all as dumb as a box of rocks. I remember the preachers of my childhood going on and on about the evils of television. To the point that after one especially fiery sermon on the evils of soap operas in particular. If you don't know what those are, I can't help you. But after one fiery sermon about soap operas, a number of families chunked their televisions into the Ustanala River. I was there to see it when it happened. What would these poor preachers think today? I imagine that YouTube and TikTok would scramble their poor fundamentalist little brains. And I don't want to sound too much like them today in regard to 21st century technology. But speaking of scrambled brains, that's exactly what the contemporary smartphone has done and is doing to every one of us. It has weakened our already flailing and failing ability to focus It has created a society-wide sense of attention deficit disorder. It is fragmenting our minds, and all the studies now rolling out 15 years into the smartphone revolution say the same thing. For all of its benefits, this technology also comes with its drawbacks. For example, extended smartphone use decreases your ability to memorize things. You don't believe that? We all, every one of us, used to have at least a hundred phone numbers memorized. I don't even know my children's phone numbers today. Why memorize it when my phone already has it memorized and stored? Thirty years ago, the average political soundbite was more than a minute. Today, it is seven seconds. Distracted driving... The use of a smartphone while piloting a vehicle makes you more dangerous than if you had had a six-pack before getting behind the wheel. Problem-solving ability is down. Why work it out when you can look it up? Anxiety disorders are up higher than ever, and much of it is due to the fact that the world is constantly unfolding before our eyes, and you can see more tragedy in a single day. Than our ancestors heard about in a year. And the human species is simply not equipped to take in that much trouble at one time. Verbal communication is worse than before. Peer-to-peer socialization is in decline. Our polarization in this country is a direct result of being algorithmed into categories by our technology. Professor Barbara Demeneau, a leading French scientist who has studied disruption of attention spans and their causes for years, puts it bluntly, quote, there is no way that anyone can have a normal brain today. She points out that the brightest college students today can only keep their focus for about 60 seconds. The older, more settled, less technology-dependent office workers of today are down to a three-minute attention span the average American picks up his or her cell phone 193 times a day and checks it 344 times. Telling a child, or an adult for that matter, give me your phone. You might as well tell a drunk that they've just gone into rehab because you're about to get delirium tremors and withdrawal All the way around. And it's the truth. It's that powerful. Now you might be tempted to say today. You know. Are we going out to the Choctaw River today. To throw our phones into the river. No. No. It's not that simple. And you might be tempted to ask. What has any of this got to do with being a Christian. And I hope you are asking that question. Because a large part of being a Christian. And I could back up and say this. A large part of being a human is our ability to commune with the Spirit, to commune with God. And last week I talked about how most of us truly wish for, we want God to show us the way. God to show us God's self. And we might say something like that, I just wish God would tell me what to do. But if God were screaming at us, our attention spans are now so short, and the distraction is so much that we probably wouldn't even know if God was speaking to us. An old story from the time of the Methodist circuit riders. You know what a Methodist circuit rider is? Back in the day, the Methodist church grew so fast here in. North America, that they didn't have enough pastors for all their churches, and so the circuit rider would get on his horse and he would just ride town to town. One Sunday he would be in Freeport, and the next Sunday he would be in Point Washington, and the next Sunday he would be in Chipley or what have you, and they would just make that circle preaching in a different church every month. And there's the story about the Methodist parson who's riding along and comes upon this beautiful field and the farmer's out there working. And the preacher says... My, what a beautiful day it is to the farmer. And the farmer is all surly in his response. And he says, well, it might be a beautiful day for you. I'm out here breaking my back in this dirt. And all you're doing is riding around on a horse thinking about God all day. The pastor stops, climbs down, walks over to the farmer. And he says, you know, thinking about God all day is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, In fact, if you can sit still for five minutes and think about nothing but God, I'll give you this horse. Well, the guy came climbing out of that field just as fast as he could. You're on. He sits down by the tree in the shade, gets comfortable. Parson pulls out his pocket watch, gives him a nod to start. 90 seconds in, the farmer says, Hey, if I win this horse, are you going to throw the saddle in too? And it was over. He wasn't thinking about God. He was thinking about what He was going to do when He won that horse. And that was before iPhones. When you have to focus your mind on a single thing, it's much harder than you think it is. And if you're going to focus your mind... And focus your hearing on hearing from God. That's especially difficult. I hope you noticed something in the scripture reading this morning. Anna, as usual, did a great job introducing it. Jesus was a busy man. Now to be fair, Mark, Anna would have loved the iPhone. His is the shortest, most action-packed. Most activity driven gospel of the four. You're always hearing phrases from Mark like this immediately, straight away, next, just as soon. Common expressions. Mark is swiping left and swiping right, posting his TikToks and moving on to Instagram just as fast as he can. And today, he shoves a week of activity and travel into 18 verses. And gets to events in Jesus' life in this very first chapter that it takes Luke four chapters to get to, and it takes Matthew eight chapters to get to. Chop, chop. Mark is not fooling around. Jesus leaves Nazareth for his own safety after being nearly tarred and feathered. He comes to Capernaum. He sets up a seminary. He films Exorcist Part 2. He makes the headlines of the Galilean Gazette. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law and brings her back from near death. And I have, I'm not sure if Pete was thankful or resentful for that. We don't know. And bless this woman's heart. And I was hoping you would stop and say something about this. Thank you. She's got the fever of COVID or something laying there nearly dead Jesus heals her, and she goes straight to work in the kitchen. (laughs) Maybe she was just resting. Leave her alone. And Mark has to include that little detail. I don't know why. But all this healing stuff brings out all the sick and the afflicted, and they line up outside, and there's Jesus triaging and healing and treating the wounded until midnight. He's a busy man. He's busy with good work. He's busy with God's work. And that is the context for what Jesus does next. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Peter Rowan, living musical legend, was a teenager when he joined Bill Monroe's bluegrass band. And he and Bill and two others toured the United States way back in the 60s in a station wagon. Busking shows all over the place. And Rowan says in his memoirs that Bill Monroe never missed a sunrise his entire life. Wherever he was, whatever he was doing, he would get up and see the sun come up. Maybe Monroe took his cue from Jesus. Because you find him, this is not the only time. You find him in multiple occasions and at multiple times pulling back and pulling away Getting up early in the morning to pray, to commune, to clear his head, to deprogram, detox, whatever you want to call it. Because the busier you are, and busy people, listen, the busier you are, the more quiet and lonely time you are going to need. The busier you are, the more quiet time you're going to need. Now, I know I'm not going to turn you all into meditationalists or contemplatives today in a single talk, and that's not my intent, but I want you to begin to learn to be still. And I am imploring you for your Christian health and your human health to unplug, to quiet your mind. Right now on Sunday morning, the beginning of the week, some of you this morning, have already received your weekly screen time notification. I turned mine off. It tells you how long you looked at that device during the previous week. And just so you know, the average American screen time across all digital devices, from televisions to phones, is more than eight hours a day that we stare at a digital device. And I am exhorting you to lower those numbers. I'm inviting you to follow a pattern established by Jesus, followed by every saint, sage, or spiritual master who has ever lived. You must disengage from your work and for your world. You must go where the lonely go if you are going to be of any use to your work and to your world. If you're going to hear the voice of God. Bill Monroe saw every sunrise... My friend David Beavers in Nashville, Tennessee, has converted an old potting shed in his backyard into his meditation room. It's not his office. He took all the furniture out of it. Just a comfy chair. He goes and sits. Clarence Jordan One of my heroes, founder of Koinonia and the inspiration for Habitat for Humanity, had a riding shack out in the woods. He did more sitting and praying there than riding. And when he left this world far too soon, it was in that shack where he gently slumped slumped over and breathed his last. My late friend Pat Carlisle, many of you knew. Not only a blockbuster realtor, but also a meditation teacher. She would tell me that each morning she would begin each morning in stillness. And she wouldn't get up get in the lotus position and chant. She told me once that that only got her dogs worked up. And once the dogs were worked up, there was nothing else that could be done. And so she would lie in bed in the mornings as still as possible so as not to disturb the dogs. And enter into the presence of God. I have an ADHD friend who is really bad at sitting still. He walks and prays. And things. And I've learned lately that the best spiritual tool I now have in my arsenal is a writing lawnmower. Who knew that huskvarna was the Swedish word for serenity? I get on that lawnmower, man, no phone, no internet browser, no email. No technology except the seat that I'm sitting in. And I can just mow for hours, me and God, out in nature and the wild. I start praying that the grass would just grow back as soon as I finish sometimes. Well, what do you pray for when you're out there like that? Well, I heard a story about Mother Teresa years ago, years ago. And when I first heard it, I didn't get it. Because I was trained in a school of thought that said quiet time with God is a time where you read as many Bible verses as you can read, you go through your prayerful checklist just as fast as you can, and then you write something really uber spiritual in your journal, and then you've had quiet time. But as we get older, we figure out that quiet time is just that, quiet time. And Mother Teresa said this, she was asked, by a journalist, what do you say when you pray? And she answered, I don't say anything. I listen. The interviewer was Dan Rather. And so he asked her, well then, what does God say when you listen? And she said, oh, God listens too. And Rather hesitated for a minute. And Mother Teresa saw his hesitation and said, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Mm. For decades of my life, I didn't understand that. It's taken me a while to get it. Should we pray? Yes, I think so. Should we let God know what we need? Absolutely. Though I'm certain God already knows what we need, as the scriptures tell us. Should we keep a prayer list? Yes, it's We've already established we have no attention span whatsoever. It'd probably be a good idea to write those things down. But at the end of it all, it's not about saying anything. It's about being. It's about communing. It's about dwelling in the presence of the wondrous more who is beyond description or explanation. It's about getting into that divine flow where words are not even necessary. We are extremely single-minded people. And all of you people that think, and I'm included, think, oh, I'm a great multitasker. No, you're not. You're just a juggler. You're moving from one task to the next and making the circle again and having to refocus every time you let go of something to take hold of something else. The human brain is single-minded. And the only way to focus the mind on God is sometimes to get away from every other person, demand, or distraction. That is Jesus' example. It was the only way for Him to recharge. The only way to enter into the flow of God's grace and wordless communication. Time will fall away desire and ego will vanish and it will just be you in the quiet in the universe in the huskvarna or whatever and i'm telling you god can come to you in that stillness like a still small voice like a gentle breeze like nothing else you have ever experienced i'll leave you once again this week with the words of anthony DeMello, to whom i referred a couple times a couple weeks ago He once wrote in his journal, and maybe Teresa learned this from him, for they were both in India at the time. Have we got that slide? There it is. DeMello says, there are four stages of prayer. One, I talk and God listens. Two, God talks and I listen. Three, neither talks, both listen. And four, nobody talks, nobody listens. We sit together in silence. Sometimes Mother Teresa prayed using words. These are her words and this is a blessing from her. Let nothing upset you. Let nothing frighten you. Everything is changing. God alone is sure. And in the stillness is where you will find God. Then you will lack nothing.